There is a feminization of men in our culture. A feminization of men in our culture. Men are being conditioned to believe that masculinity is toxic. Little boys are being trained to apologize for the behaviors of their gender. Many boys today are misdiagnosed with learning disorders. Learning disorders we, we didn't see in previous generations. Perhaps little boys are dumber than they were in previous generations. Or perhaps, maybe the evidence suggests it's because boys learn differently from girls. And the educational system has become gendered and configured for girls. And it's not just school where boys masculinity is being attacked. It's being attacked in t- with TV programming. Masculinity is attacked by TV programming, video games. Yes, video games, pornography, and absentee fathers. And the church has fought back. And we should fight. We should preserve masculinity. But we must fight with weapons not of this world. Patriarchy has been one of, the way that, one of the ways the church has turned to deny egalitarianism and especially the feminist variety. And it's a wrong turn. It's a wrong turn back into the world. Back into the world, seeking control through coercion and power, just like feminism, but now for men. Patriarchy is the other side of modernity's coin. It doesn't deny femininity. It denies her personhood. And it doesn't make strong men. It makes little weak men. Weak men who think it's their place to put women in their place. Patriarchalism is just as evil as the attack on masculinity. It is not the answer to feminization of the modern man. Christian patriarchalism isn't biblical. It's cultural. And I hope you're learning as you're reformed and becoming reformed that the reformed are always biblical. And so we always go a different way from the world. We're always different from the world. We don't look like the left. We don't look like the right. We don't look like the fundamentalism. fundamentalism. We don't look like liberals. We have our own way because our way is the Bible and the Bible only. So we don't do culture. We do Christian. We do Christian. So we do the cross. The cross means a Christian ethic of masculinity ends with service and suffering because it begins with love. Love. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God. We are commanded as Christians to be imitators of God. That's a high... We're already, we're already done. We're already screwed. <laughs> be imitators of God, but we must try. As beloved children, walk in love. Be imitators of God, walk in love. Right? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Christian ethics denies any lust for power, or it should, deny any lust for power, control, coercion, or vengeance. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Count others more significant. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. True masculinity serves. You got that, little boys? Boys becoming men? True masculinity serves. It doesn't suppress. True masculinity never suppresses. It always serves. It gives. It's not take, we're not takers. Men aren't takers. True men are givers. Masculinity doesn't cause pain. It endures pain for the sake of others. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So this morning I want to look into biblical masculinity through 1 Kings chapter 2. And I want to answer the question this morning, what is a godly man? What is a godly man? And there's a warning. To be a godly man, you must be a real man. (laughs) To be a godly man, you must be a real man, which means you're going to need to be a courageous man, a disciplined man, and a self-controlled man. So are you up to the challenge, young men, young men, older men? To be a godly man, to be a real man? Let's find out. Chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to draw near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, he commanded. The verb command here, commanded, means cause to do. This word always means cause to do. And to do what? It always means cause to do God's word. This verb is always attached to God's word. Listen to Deuteronomy 29.9. Moses writes, therefore keep... The words, keep the words. It's the same word as our Hebrew word here, commanded. Keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Commanded is a discipleship word. You see, Solomon wasn't just inheriting any kingdom. He's inheriting the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God needs a godly man to lead it. Godly men are men who do God's word. You want to be a godly man, young men, do God's word. We have the same instruction in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 4, 6. 1 Timothy 4, 6, keep a close watch. Keep, there's the word. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keep watch of your life and your doctrine. The church needs moral men. The church needs doctrinal men, therefore the church needs men who follow God's word. We must be led by the word, commanded. Led by the word, he says, verse 2, I am about to go the way of all the earth. He's leaving the earth, he's about to die, and he wants to counsel his young son. He wants to disciple him, and he wants them to teach a true masculinity. He says, be strong and show yourself a man. Be strong, show yourself a man. Strong men are made. And strong men are made by God's word. And we need men, we need women. We all need to love God's word. Be strong, show yourself a man, verse 3, and keep the charge of the Lord, your God. Keep the charge of the Lord. You see, according to David, Solomon, his son, will be strong. He will be a man if he keeps 
the word of the Lord, the charge of the Lord, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written, the law of Moses. He'll be a strong man if he takes great pains to observe what is commanded by God's word. He'll be a strong man if he observes God's standards. And he'll be a good, strong man if he grows into a lifestyle, it says, of walking. This is not just observe, but walking in God's word. Strong men are men who are living by the word of God, walking in the word of the Lord, growing in the word of the Lord. You see, godliness is a lifestyle. Godliness is a lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle of the word. The word of God must be your lifestyle. So through observing, walking, and keeping God's word, Solomon would lead God's people into prosperity. He says that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word. That the Lord may establish his word. Our prosperity is the establishment of God's word in the church. Our prosperity is the establishment of God's word in this church. And our prosperity is the establishment of this word in the church, but also in the home. Get the word right in the church, you'll get the word right in your home. And godly men are, form, are formed by the word of God. And godly men must be formed by the word, and we must be reformed by the word. That is, you know, we, we have the word of God, and we always got to be going back to the word of God. That's what it means to be reformed. Always going back to the word of God. When you hear some teaching, some idea, some ethic, you're going back to the word of God to see if that idea, that doctrine, that ethic is from God's word. And so we're only allowing ourselves to be reformed by the word. If we hear the opinions and commandments of men, we say, no. That's for weak men. <laughs> Strong men hold to the word alone, God's word alone. If you want to be a godly man, it begins with the word of God. Now, the word of God, David appeals here, is the Mosaic Covenant, which includes moral law, the moral law, the civic law, and the ceremonial law. And he says here that obedience to this law meant life glorious. He's saying if you obey this law, you will have a, uh, you'll have a glorious life with prosperity and long life in the land. Disobedience meant death. Now, there is no explicit mention of the death condition here in this text, but believe me, it's here. Every time the Mosaic law is announced in Scripture, there is both the blessings of life and the curses of death. Obey this word, life. Disobey the law, death. There's no explicit command of the death condition here, but we know it's here because if we read just a few chapters into 1 Kings, we'll start to see that they disobey and the death condition is met. And if we read all the way to the very end, we see that Israel's in exile, kicked out of the land. There's no more monarch. People have been put to death by the law. Now, there's still a king at the end of 2 Kings. There is a king, but not because of the law. By the law, Israel should have perished off the face of the earth completely. And friends, by the law, that is our place. That is our place in Adam, the first covenant head, the first covenant breaker, the one who disobeyed God's word, the one who disobeyed God's law, was cursed to death. And in Adam, the wages of sin is death. 
in Adam, we are all condemned. It is all of our lot. By the law, condemned. By the law, we all deserve eternal punishment. But in the gospel, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the promise of God, by the promise of God, grace kept alive an heir, not on the throne. At the end of 2 Kings, the heir of David is not on the throne, but he's alive. By the law, he's not on the throne, but by grace, he's still alive. There's still hope. Alive so that Christ might come to triumph over human sin and death and ascend to a throne not made with hands. You see, Christ fulfilled the Mosaic law. And he fulfilled it in our place. So Jesus Christ is the place of godliness. Jesus Christ is our place for godliness. Have you ever heard the clause or the statement, I should say, he or she is so godly. What a godly woman. What a godly man. When we hear that statement, he is so godly, what should be meant by that? He is so godly. What should be meant by that is that he has so fallen in love with his Savior who gave his life for him. He is so in love with the gospel that he's been transformed. What is meant by he is so godly should be gospel. It should be Heidelberg 61, that my perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness is the righteousness of Christ. And I receive that righteousness by faith alone, and I make it my own by faith in Christ. He's so godly means he's so gospel, (laughs) He so loves the Lord. You see, weak men, weak men look to the law for their righteousness. Weak men look to the law for their salvation, and they say in prayer, Lord, I am glad I'm not like this tax collector. But strong men beat their chest. And say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a strong man. Now, David has proclaimed the law in all its glory here in this text. The law in all its glory. Israel will prosper in the land, flowing with milk and honey, if only her king will lead them in perfect obedience. And no sooner is the law proclaimed, sin came alive, and no sooner the law is proclaimed, David in his next breath says, moreover, verse 5, you also know what Joab the son of Zariah did to me. And did to me, that little clause did to me is very telling. You know what he did to me? Here we get to see pity, or petty David. Did to me. What did Joab do to David. He did his dirty work. Joab always did David's dirty work, and David kept him around because of it. David wasn't concerned about the law when he ordered Joab, put that righteous Uriah at the forward edge of the battle so that he will die. 
He didn't worry about the law in Joab when he confessed and when he murdered Uriah, the Hittite. What did he do to David? He was actually always faithful to David, not in the, you know, not the wisest and best way. But he was always good to David, doing his dirty work and all. He says how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner. If you remember Abner the son of Ner, one could argue that he was a spy. One could argue that Abner was really a spy. And so Uriah was just doing the dirty work. And then there's Amasa, the son of Jether, who was actually the general for the enemy, turned pro-David, but then when David ordered him, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He was absent. And one could argue, Joab could see that his absence was on purpose because he was still working for the enemy, so Joab did the dirty work. He did the dirty deed to secure the kingdom. I'm not saying he's righteous or holy in these things. But one could argue that he was always serving David. He says, Abner, the son of Ner, master, the son of Jether, whom he killed, he did kill. He did the dirty work for David. And he also knew David's dirty laundry. And he also chose the wrong son. If we go back to 1 Kings 1, he accidentally chose the wrong son. And, you know, he just assumed the next eldest in line would be the next king, so he just gets behind the, the oldest son. But it happened to be the wrong son. He didn't know it. And so David says, act according to your wisdom. But then he tells him what really to do. Do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. I would argue when he says, act according to your wisdom, he's not saying act according to godly wisdom. He's not saying don't fulfill Torah. He's saying be crafty. Make sure you put him to death for political gain, for political reasons, but make sure it looks righteous. Make sure it looks holy. Make sure it looks religious. David didn't want Joab killed for religious reasons. It was a political hit job. One commentator put it best. He said, I quote, This is a fairly sordid story of power politics, thinly disguised as a morality tell. And then he says, verse 7, But deal loyally with the sons of Barzilla, the Gileite. Let them be among those who eat at your table. For with loyalty they met me. There it is. With loyalty they met me. It's all about me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. David tells Solomon to reward old friends. Reward old friends. Take out my enemies. Reward old friends. This is the wisdom of the world. Love those who love you. Hate those who hate you. And there's more. Verse 8. And there's also with you Shimei, Shimea, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me. There again, another telling clause. He cursed me. Now, if you remember when he cursed David, David accepted it as condemnation from the Lord. David rightly understood that the Lord was cursing him for the killing and the adultery that he committed, and the Lord was, the Lord was cursing him through Shimei, and he said, do not let this man be put to death. Let him curse. And then he swore an oath that Shimei would never die by David's hands. But now David says, well, I'm going. You can, you can do it. And he goes back on his vow. He goes back on what he swore to the Lord. He says, I swore to him by the Lord, and that's a, an oath before the Lord, 
I will not put you to death with the sword. But now you, Solomon, you can get rid of my political enemies. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what to do. You shall bring, and then he tells him what to do. You shall bring his head down to, with blood to Sheol. We had good David, repentant David, but now we have vengeance is mine, David. So he goes back on his word, back on his promise. This is petty, David. Tying up loose ends, David. This isn't Torah, David. This isn't what he just commanded, establish the word of the Lord. You see, David gave spiritual advice to his son, and then right after the spiritual advice, he offered him cold-blooded political counsel. He called him to covenant faithfulness on one hand, and then called him to break the covenant on the other hand. A man after God's own heart. <laughs> this is just more of what we've learned in First and Second Samuel. Continue on with First Kings. What is this, a man after God's own heart? I'll tell you what this is. If you're Bibles, and we'll finish up here, turn with me to Romans 7. This is what this is. This is Romans 7, verse 14. Romans 7. You got Acts, Romans 7, verses 14 through 23. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now I do, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me, for I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul is saying here as a godly man, he wants to do good. He desires to do good. Godly men don't want to be sinners. But guess what? We're sinners. We sin. So we have to fight. Godly men have to fight that sinful nature. We have to put it to death once and for all. Ephesians 4, says, put off your old self, which is what David's talking about. Put it off. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. You see, as Christians, we all want to be saints, men and women, Christians. We want to be saints. But the evil in me doesn't have the ability. What does this mean for us as Christians? It means Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
Godly men need and want the gospel more than breath itself. Because we know and we confess what a wretched man I am. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, we live and die to ourselves as godly men, godly people. We live and die to ourselves by the power of God, and that power is the gospel. Don't let anybody tell you differently. You see, the book of Kings is part of the Christian canon that leads us to Christ. The book of Kings is the part of Christian canon that leads us to Christ. David couldn't provide the righteous rule. He was a sinner. We've seen it over and over again. Even in his death, he wasn't a righteous ruler. He didn't fulfill Torah. He couldn't provide the righteousness that reflects the Torah. And Solomon's reign, it's a glorious reign. It's a glorious reign. We're going to hear all about it. Wise, what a wise man, Solomon. We're going to hear all about his wisdom, his glory. But he never reached the heights of godliness, godliness that God's word demands. And by the time First and Second Kings ends, we're faced wondering, can any king keep the righteous rule of the Lord? Can any king lead God's people into prosperity? And Jesus Christ stands up and says, here I am. Here I am. And he is the true and righteous king who has led his people into life prosperous. True satisfaction of sins and misery. True righteousness that is ours by faith that we can stand holy before a God and only holy in Christ. So by faith, Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my prosperity. Godly men are gospel men. Our strength is found in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. So young boys, you want to be godly men? Look to Christ alone. And imitate Christ. Now here's where it gets hard, young men, old men, middle-aged men. I'm still a young man. With my reading glasses. Uh, and I'm going to grow my beard back out. There's more gray than usual. What's going on? Okay. Here's where it gets hard, godly men. Paul commends godly men, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And what did he do for the church? Gave himself. That's the call to godly men. Service and suffering, not coercion and domination. Godly men take up the cross, so godly men are humble men. And godly men are submissive men. We submit to others' needs. Did you know the Bible never tells a man to tell a wife to submit? The Bible never, anywhere in Scripture, tells a man to tell a woman to submit. The Holy Spirit tells women to submit. And the Holy Spirit tells everyone to submit service and suffering he calls men to submission submit to one another give deference care love service outdo one another in showing honor you want to be a godly man then outdo your neighbor in honor when your neighbor honors you you're like dang it he's honored me <laughs> now I gotta go show more honor to him that's why I don't like presents 
on my birthday. It's like, man, now I gotta buy you a present. It's gotta be better. You see, godly men are not takers. Godly men are givers. Godly men are servants. Godly men order their priorities and their interests for the care and love and service of others. Godly men don't seek power. Godly men seek charity. You want to talk about hard work. There's no harder work. Are you brave enough? Are you man enough? Only by faith in Christ. And let's get to work. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.